And let me ask the rest of you, if you will, please, to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we looked last week at the transfiguration of Jesus, the glory on the top of the mountain. And now we look at the scene that was going on at the bottom of the mountain where unbelief was on display, the tyranny of Satan was on display, the pain of a father was on display, and yet at the same time, so was the strength of the Savior. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29 this morning. Please follow along as I read, and then we'll pray and ask God's help. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, Immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to the holy ground of your word, we confess that we need your help. Help to understand what you would have us to learn today. Help to not make the same mistake of the faithless generation that the Lord Jesus was surrounded by. Help to not make the same mistake of the overconfident disciples who rested more in what you had given them than they did you. Help even as we reflect the cry of the Father that we believe but help our unbelief. Jesus, you said that we can do nothing apart from you. We know that to be true. And yet as you shepherd us through this life, you lead us into places where we, we get to see that and experience that in more profound and more deep ways than we ever knew it to be true when we first heard it. 
Lord, when we are met with our own weaknesses and with our own limitations, it's often a painful experience. But if we can see them with the eyes of faith, if we can see them like a Christian should see them, then we can see those not as problems, but as opportunities. Opportunities for your faithfulness to shine. Opportunities for your power and for your strength in the weak things and the despised things of the world. So as we look at this this event, which took place so long ago, we pray, Lord, that you would bring it to our minds and bring it to our hearts as if we were living it right here, right now. We ask that you would demonstrate the power of your word in our hearts so that we would be forever changed. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say together, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Limitation, weakness, frailty, powerlessness. These are all things that we are not only wired to reject, but all things that the world bombards us with the instruction to reject. In the military, some of you may know that the saying often goes, pain is just weakness leaving the body. And so you're taught to think about yourself as needing to get to a point where there is no longer any traces or any elements of weakness in you. It's no different than what the world's message is, is is it? Make yourself better. Find those hidden strengths and hidden talents that lie within you. You can be immortal if you just try. Now the reality is that God has made human beings in such a profoundly wondrous way that it is often the case that you are far more able than you realize you are. You can do things that you probably think you cannot do if you would just set yourself to it. But every single one of us knows the feeling of powerlessness, the feeling of helplessness. Every single one of us knows what it's like to run headfirst into that brick wall of your own limitations. Yet it's only the Christian who has had their eyes opened to realize that while the world might see limitations and weaknesses and frailty and powerlessness as a bad thing, Christians see them as reality and opportunity. The reality is our weaknesses expose to us that we are not the creator, we are simply the creature. And so our weaknesses, our frailty, our powerlessness, the exposure of those things should get our attention. And they should lead us then to look to the one who has no weaknesses, who has no frailty, who has no powerlessness, and at the very same time displays to us and for us perfect compassion that looks upon the weak things of the world, that sees the sinner struggling and condescends and comes 
in the person of Jesus Christ. So that he meets you in your powerlessness and he meets you in your weakness. So that you can recognize that your weakness and your powerlessness and your frailty are not problems, but they are in fact opportunities. To recognize that you may have limitations, but the creator has no limitations. And that very same creator has come to us in Jesus. And not only has he come to us, but he has come for us. To show us over and over again that he is the very God who said that he was merciful and gracious, abounding in love. And so as we look at this particular story, as we, as we recognize that at the beginning of Mark chapter 9, the, the, glory of the, the glory of Jesus shined brightly on the mountain. The glory of Jesus was revealed on the mountaintop where Peter, James, and John were there to witness that very miracle, that very peeling back of the flesh of Jesus to see that not only could he do the things that God could do, but he possesses the very glory that God has because he is the very son of God himself. And yet, while that was happening, there was another scene going on at the very base of the mountain. While the glory of Jesus shone brightly on top of the mountain, the tyranny of Satan was alive and well at the bottom of the mountain. The tyranny of Satan in the overconfidence of the disciples themselves the tyranny of Satan in the unbelief of the entire generation that Jesus was surrounded by, the tyranny of Satan to take control of a young boy, a boy that Luke tells us was the only son of this desperate father who came not to meet the disciples for help, but to meet Jesus for help. And so as we see these weaknesses exposed, we see the power and the strength and the the glory of Jesus also exposed. And meet humanity in its weakness. As we walk through this passage then, I want us to see three expressions of human weakness that teach us to trust Jesus. Weakness, inability, powerlessness, are not problems, they're opportunities. Opportunities for you to, perhaps for the very first time, realize that you are not the captain of your own ship. But there is a God who made you, and a God who loves you, and a God who invites you to himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would turn from your sins and trust him. And opportunities for us who do trust Jesus, and yet who can relate so profoundly and so deeply with the cry of the Father, I believe, help my unbelief. Opportunities for us to have our weak faith exposed and to be reminded that it's not about the weakness of our faith, but the strength of the Savior. And so let's walk through then these three expressions of human weakness First of all, we see in verses 14 to 19, when no one can help, trust Jesus. When no one can help, trust Jesus. I mentioned already that 
Peter and James and John are accompanying Jesus on top of the mountain. They're now on their way down and verses 14 and 15 set up the scene that they witness when they come down. And when they came down to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. So the rest of the disciples had been left at the base of the mountain because it wasn't the will of Jesus for them to see his glory. And in the midst of their waiting, they had been surrounded by a crowd. In the crowd was a father who had a serious problem. And then as so often happens throughout the Gospels, not only was there a great crowd, but there was that enemy in the scribes. Those who had dogged the ministry of Jesus from its very beginning. Those who were jealous of Jesus' popularity. Those who knew their Bibles and yet were completely blind to the teaching of the Bible. That Jesus was the one who fulfilled every single word that they had memorized in the scriptures. And yet they rejected him. And so the scene is Jesus and the disciples, the three come down and they, they see this great crowd surrounding the disciples and in the center are the disciples and the scribes in a shouting match. As Mark tells us, they're arguing together. The word is pictures of an intense, heated debate. Today we would say they were fighting with one another, not with fists, but with words. And verse 15 says, And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. The crowd's watching the scene. The scribes and the disciples are going at it again. Maybe they're breaking out the popcorn and the candy, thinking to themselves, this is getting good. But then they see the one whom they came to see coming down the mountain, the Lord Jesus himself. And Mark makes a point to tell us about their response to Jesus. They were greatly amazed, and they ran to him and greeted him. Strong language that Mark's using. In fact, some even think that perhaps this is continuing to reflect Moses coming off the mountain. When Moses came off the mountain to meet with God, you remember his face was shining brightly so that he had to put a veil over his face. Perhaps some say this was Jesus still with the sort of afterglow of his glory, and that's what was so amazing to the people. I tend to think that that was not the case. Jesus had told them to not say anything about this, And in that situation, when the people saw the glory of God shining off the face of Moses, the people were afraid. In this situation, the people weren't afraid. They were amazed and they ran to him. I think what's happening here is that the people realize that Jesus' disciples can't do anything about this problem. And if the argument between the disciples and the scribes centered on the, uh, the ability to cast out demons, the scribes had their own sort of incantations and methods of casting out demons. Some date all the way back, supposedly, to Solomon himself. If that was the case, if that's what they were arguing with, the crowd was watching this scene and they were met with the inability of man to do anything about this father's problem. But they had been watching another man a man named Jesus of Nazareth, a man who taught like no one else they had ever heard before, and a man who could cast out demons with the word of his command, a man who could raise the dead back to life, a man who could heal any disease and any sickness that he encountered. And so they knew when they saw this man coming that finally someone was here who could do something about it. 
And so I think this great amazement reflects the crowd's excitement as if to say, yes, finally, Jesus is here. And so they run up to him and they meet him. And Jesus begins to interact with the crowd. Verse 16, he says, says and he asked them, Why are you argu- what are you arguing about with them? Jesus immediately, like a good leader does, goes to the, the defense of his disciples. He wants to know what's going on, but he wants to know specifically, why are you arguing with my disciples? Verse 17 says, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. You'll notice that someone from the crowd answers and then that someone focuses in more specifically on the someone, it's the father, the father who's desperate. Because his son has a serious problem. His son has an unclean spirit, a demon, inside of him that takes over him and, and seeks to kill him. But he says to Jesus, so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Notice the father makes it crystal clear who he brought his son to. Teacher, I brought my son to you. But your disciples were not able to cast it out. The father had no intention of going to the disciples of Jesus, but Jesus at the time wasn't around. So he settled for the disciples of Jesus. You remember back in chapter 6, Jesus had actually given his disciples authority to be able to cast out demons. Chapter 6, verses 7 to 13 says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if in any place, and if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Perhaps the crowd and perhaps the father knew that Jesus' disciples had an ability to cast out demons. And so maybe when Jesus wasn't around and they had to settle for the disciples, maybe there was still some hope. But it seems and it will become more obvious in Jesus' interaction in the house with his disciples It seems that the disciples were overconfident in their own abilities. Yes, Jesus had given them authority. Jesus had given them a gift. But they forgot that even in that giving of the gift, in the gift of that authority, none of it rested in them. It was not inherent in them. It was derived from Jesus. And so if they were going to walk in that gift, if they were going to live in that authority, then it would need to be that every moment of their lives was completely and entirely dependent upon Jesus. It's a good course correction for an overconfident disciple, isn't it? When we think, I seem to be pretty good at this particular thing. God's given me a gift. It's easy then to take that a little bit too far 
and to begin to think to ourselves, I'm pretty awesome. I don't know if you know this or not, crowd, but Jesus gave us authority to cast out demons. Watch this. But the Father makes it crystal clear they weren't able to do it. Jesus' response then to the Father's explanation of the situation in verse 19 hits the nail on the head of what the root of this entire problem is. Jesus expresses his frustration. It's a deep emotional response. Verse 19 says, and he answered them, oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? He exclaims from the depth of his heart, oh, faithless generation. And he nails exactly what the problem was in the very first place. It was not that this demon was too strong for the disciples. It was the fact that the disciples, the crowd, the father, and in fact the entire generation lacked faith completely in Jesus. You imagine the scene. It's a, it's a touchy situation, right? Could you imagine if you were there watching this event go down? You've heard the story of this father, and perhaps you even know this father-son team. And maybe you've even seen what this demon does to this boy. You've seen the damage that it inflicts. You can see the scars from the burns when the demon throws him into the fire. You can see that something's not right here. And you hear the desperation of the father. I I don't think he was saying this in a sort of cold, calculated voice. We've met a desperate mother already in Mark, and now we meet a desperate father. And you've seen what it's like to, to see a desperate parent. A parent who is so desperate for the health and well-being of their child, they'll do anything. And so that's the scene. And then how does Jesus respond? With what is a rebuke to everyone there. It seems like it's insensitive, but the reality is, if Jesus had not put his finger on the root of the problem, then the problem would have persisted, wouldn't it? We can learn a lesson from Jesus here. It's a sensitive situation, but Jesus speaks to it with crystal clarity, even if it seems like it could be insensitive. If you were in that situation, perhaps what you would have done is maybe put your arm around the father and said, I'm so sorry. I can only imagine what you and your son have been through. But that's not what Jesus does. That's not to take away in any way from the love and compassion of Jesus. In fact, the father is going to appeal to the compassion of Jesus It's not to say that Jesus is somehow sinfully angry and his frustration at the faithlessness of the generation leads him to speak in anger. No, this is the skill of wise words. 
Proverbs 25, 11 and 12 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a silver setting. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. And you're familiar with the scripture that faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse are the kisses of an enemy, right? Had Jesus not put his finger on the faithlessness that he was surrounded by as the, as the perfect son of God, then the father never would have been able to exclaim to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. You see, this, this demonic oppression was an opportunity to expose the unbelief that Jesus was surrounded by and yet another opportunity to display his compassion so that people would not walk away going, wow, Jesus does cool things but so that people would say, wow, Jesus is God and we can trust him. Even in the midst of the difficulty of our situation, no matter how hard it might be, no matter how long we might have to endure, we can trust Jesus. And that's the whole point here. When no one can help you, you must trust Jesus. Jesus draws out the issue, draws out the unbelief. He demonstrates for him, for the father most specifically, for the disciples and for the whole crowd that while he might be surrounded by faithlessness, his power and his ability and even his own compassion does not depend on the faith or faithlessness of the people around him. What does Jesus say to the father? After expressing his frustration with the entire generation, he simply says, bring him to me. The father got what he was looking for. This is what he wanted in the very first place. I don't want to deal with the disciples, Jesus. I want to go straight to you. I don't want to talk to anybody that can't help me with my problem. Let me talk to the general manager. The Old Testament gives us a great illustration of what to do when no one can help you. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat, who had just been installed recently in the story as the king of Judah, was facing an enemy army that was an alliance of the people surrounding Israel. It was an army that was stronger than them. It was an army that had gotten the advance on them. It was an army that was about to pounce on them. And it was an army that Judah would not have been able to defeat. And so rather than relying on his own army, his own perceived strength, Jehoshaphat did something else. Second Chronicles chapter 20 verses 1 to 4 tell us about his problem. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites and with them some of the Meunites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. That's to say, they're very close to you and they're about to pounce on you. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. And proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah, and Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And then it tells us about Jehoshaphat's prayer. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, 
Are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they, lived, and they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This father didn't know what to do, but his eyes were on Jesus. And even though Jesus calls out the faithlessness of the generation, including even the faithlessness of the father, the father was still there. He still came to Jesus. He was still before Jesus, which as Jesus will point out, reflects something of a faith already. I don't know what it is for you that you feel like no one can help you with. But I want you to know with absolute certainty you can trust Jesus. It could be that he will take that problem away. It could be that he will lead you through that problem for the rest of your life. Or it could be that that problem will be your ride home to heaven in glory. But whatever the circumstance is, you can trust Jesus. And so we see, first of all, this first expression of human weakness that nobody could help, but only Jesus. We see the reality is when no one can help, trust Jesus. And then secondly, as we see this continued interaction between Jesus and the Father, the second expression that leads us to trust Jesus is when your faith is weak, trust Jesus. When your faith is weak, trust Jesus. Jesus. Jesus tells the father to bring him, bring his son to him. And verse 20 says, and they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. As soon as the demon saw Jesus, just like this happened before in the gospel, according to Mark, it recognizes who he is. It, it, does not want to let go of the territory it has claimed, but it understands that Jesus is the one who has come to bind the strong man. The one who has come to loosen the tyranny of Satan, to overthrow his power, and to demonstrate his own power over the kingdom of darkness. The one who shines bright in glory on the Mount of Transfiguration is the one who comes down veiled in his flesh to demonstrate that you do not mess with Jesus. So the demon does everything it can to hold on. And you'll notice Jesus maintains his calm. Leaders don't panic. 
Verse 21 says, Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? You've got, you've got this poor boy rolling around, foaming at the mouth, being convulsed and tormented by a demon. And Jesus just turns to the father and said, how long has this been happening to him? That's what happens when you go to the doctor, right? And you say, my knee is hurting. And he or she says to you, how long has this been going on? Because they want to understand the circumstance and they want to hear what you have to say in order to better understand your problem. But we know who who this one who's asking the question is. This is no physician. This is the great physician. This is the one who knows all things. Jesus' question is not designed in order to build a better understanding so that he can get a proper diagnosis and fix the problem. Jesus' question is a reflection of his very own compassion. His question is designed to let the Father bear his heart to Jesus. And that's exactly what the Father does. And he said from childhood... And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And that's exactly what Jesus was looking for. Jesus is, uh, the, the man's response is a mirror image of the leper's response. Back in chapter 2, Jesus was met with a leper who knew that Jesus could heal. He just didn't know if Jesus would heal him. But now the father is the mirror reflection of this. He knew that Jesus would heal, but he didn't know if Jesus could heal. This had been a problem that had been going on since this boy's childhood. Maybe five to ten years? Maybe more? The father's answer reflects that this had been a problem that had persisted for a very long time. The demon throws the boy into fire. The demon throws the boy into water. And no doubt, each time, someone would have had to get the boy out. Who knows how many times the father had to reach into fire himself to pull his son out. Or perhaps dive into the river or into a well to get his son out. The exasperation that the father faced would have been severe. And he feels like there's no hope anymore. Is this going to be our lot in life for the rest of it? Many of us know that very same feeling, don't we? Lord, is this going to be my experience for the rest of my life? Am I going to have to deal with this chronic pain forever? Are you ever going to save that person that I love so dearly? Will my my health ever improve? It seems like anything and everything I try doesn't ever work. Lord, is this, is, this, is this it? 
You see, those things are all reflections of the condition of humanity living in a fallen world. Not just the the fact that we are creatures, but the fact that we are creatures living in a world under the consequences of sin. Brokenness and frailty is the name of the game. And so this father has come to a point where he's just about hopeless. And he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This is the, the, the last point of desperation. We came to you, Jesus. We got stuck with your disciples. They couldn't do anything about it. But if you can, would you just have some compassion on us? Would you just help us? And Jesus responds to the father and says to him, if you can. Yet another reflection, I think, of the the frustration and the exasperation of Jesus, the perfect son of God, who has now walked in a faithless world for 30 plus years. Being bombarded by sin all around him, being bombarded by faithlessness all around him. And yet it doesn't stop him from exercising his compassion, does it? Jesus then says to the Father, all things are possible for the one who believes. All things are possible for the one who believes. It's not to say that if you have enough faith, you can do anything That is to say, if your faith is put in the right place, he can do anything. You see, this gets twisted into thinking that if you can just conjure up the right faith, if you can just believe harder, then you can move mountains, as Jesus says elsewhere. But it's not really about the one who exercises the faith. It's about where the faith is placed. Jesus wants to know, Jesus wants this father to know, he wants to show his disciples that when they exert faith in him, even if it's faith like a mustard seed, they'll be able to do anything, not because of their ability, but because of where they have placed their faith. And so in Matthew's account, Jesus tells the disciples, Matthew 17, 20, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Why is it that nothing will be impossible for you if you have faith the size of a mustard seed? Because nothing is impossible for God. And so this is designed then not to show the power of personal faith, but designed to show the power of the one whom you must put your faith in. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We will not bow to your idol. Well, if you don't bow, I will throw you into the fire. God will save us, God can save us, God will save us, and even if God doesn't save us, we will not bow. 
It's not to say that if you have enough faith, even in the right one, that anything that you want will happen to you. It's to say that if you trust the right one, then you can trust him no matter what does happen to you. Because he's working it for your good and for his glory. Jesus is... Power is not swayed in any way by this father. He declares all things are possible for one who believes. And then the father cries out. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Which is a strange mixture, isn't it? Belief and unbelief. Belief, the purity of belief diluted with the pollution of unbelief. And yet, isn't that life? What faithful Christian here has not cried out this very same thing? I believe, but help my unbelief, Lord. That's the cry of every Christian throughout all all history. I believe, but help my unbelief. I know you can do it, Lord, but I'm tempted to doubt if you want to. I'm tempted to doubt if you can. I'm tempted to doubt if you will. I'm tempted to doubt if you even hear this prayer at all, but I know you can And that's what faith walked out and lived out in a fallen world looks like. Because the only one to have ever held perfect faith is the Lord Jesus himself. Yet another reason to simply cling to him. And so the father cries out in a reflection of humility. He's being honest. I believe, but help my unbelief. Not only is this a reflection of humility, it's also a reflection of true belief. He wants so desperately to hold on to the word of Jesus. And he does with everything that he can muster up. The problem is all that he can muster up is a weak faith. Here's what I've got, Jesus. I need you to meet the rest. I can bring about 5% faith. I need you to bring 95% faith. And Jesus says to him, okay, I got you. I will meet you in the weakness of your faith. Because it's not about the quality of the faith. It's not about the strength of the faith. It's not about the power of the faith. It's about the strength of the Savior. And so Jesus' ability then doesn't depend on the weakness of this father's faith, but depends on his identity and his personhood. He is the very son of God, and he can do all things. Verse 25 continues the story, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Jesus doesn't want to make a spectacle any more than it already has. This is the point of Jesus' ministry when he is taking it more privately to teach his disciples. A greater crowd starts to gather, and so Jesus thinks, we've got to get this thing done so that I don't draw any more attention to this man and his boy and to my ministry. And so he commands this mute and deaf spirit to come out of him, never enter him again. And verse 26 says, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. 
The demon does everything it can to hold on to the territory it's claimed, but it's no match for the spoken command of Jesus. Get lost and don't come back. And it does. Yet it seems, as the crowd looks on, that the exorcism has worked, but the patient is dead. Verse 27 says, But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now it could be that Mark intends to use resurrection language here. That's certainly the language that he uses. Yet it could also be that it's just very simply Mark saying, Jesus grabbed him by the hand, pulled him up, and the the boy got up. I don't think the boy was actually dead. Mark says that he was like a corpse. The people thought he was dead, but it could be that Mark is using this as an explanation to answer the disciples' very thing that they were just wondering about. What does he mean by the resurrection of the dead? It could be that Jesus is saying, let me show you. This is what I mean. The boy gets up. The spirit is gone. Which means that this boy who was once unable to speak and unable to hear, trapped in the shell of a body, is now set free by the power of Jesus. And isn't that what happened when when Jesus saves a soul? Set free from the bondage of Satan in order to live for him? Set free to live for God. Set free to live for what you were made to do in the very first place, to worship and enjoy God forever. And so we we see then that even when your faith is weak, trust Jesus. It's not about the strength of your faith. It's not about just believing harder. It's about knowing Jesus. You should never walk away as a Christian from any sermon, any Bible reading, and think to yourself, I just need to believe more. If I just believed more, then God would work more in my life. No, 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 no. You just need to know Jesus more. Because it's in the revelation of Jesus that your faith will strengthen. Know him, and in knowing him, you will grow increasingly confident, not in your ability, but in him and his ability. And you will find increasing rest for your soul as you know the Lord. And then thirdly, we meet this third expression of human weakness that teaches us to trust Jesus in verses 28 to 29. When you lack the ability, trust Jesus. When you lack the ability, trust Jesus. The scene shifts very quickly. We don't even get the rest of the story. We don't get to hear about how the father received his son or even the response of the crowd. Immediately, Jesus and his disciples are back in a house. Just like after healing the woman's daughter who who was sick. They're back in a house and Mark puts the focus on the lesson that this whole thing was to be for the disciples. Verse 28 says, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? It's a good question, right? Jesus had given them authority to cast out demons. They had done it before. 
And so now they're wondering, Jesus, why didn't it work? Why could we not cast this demon out? What was our problem in this particular situation? And Jesus gives them an answer. He says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Perhaps a little confusing, maybe. This answer from Jesus has often been taken to to mean, and it could very well mean that this kind is a particular kind of demon that has to be dealt in a certain way. That certainly could be the case. Or it could be that this kind of problem, a spiritual problem, has to be dealt in a certain way. But this answer from Jesus has often been taken to mean that there are certain ways that you deal with certain demons, and you need to go about dealing with those demons in a certain way. Growing up, we had some friends Uh, I guess you could call them that. Maybe they weren't friends now that I think about it. Who had books on all the different supposed kind of demons and what you were supposed to do in order to drive out these particular demons. And one time they came to our house and they sort of, you know, had a spiritual scanner to find all the demons in our house. And they cast out all the demons in our house. And wouldn't you know it, the demons were most especially located in my brother's Pokemon cards. Yeah. Don't play Pokemon. And so, you know, the house was cured of all these demons. And so it was this spiritual witch hunt to find demons. And it put the focus on the experience. So it, was, it made life have a certain excitement. Everywhere around the corner is a demon lurking to get you. But do you know what it did? It took the focus off of Jesus. And we didn't even know it. It made the excitement in this sort of mystery of life, trying to find and figure out all the problems that were hounding us because of all of these evil spirits around us. And it never made us look to Jesus. When Jesus says this kind can only come out through prayer, He's not saying this is the way that you deal with this particular kind of demon. What he is saying is that prayer is the most clear reflection of faith in him. You see, the disciples had the problem of overconfidence. Jesus gave us this authority. We've used it before. Now this father comes with his son, it's no problem for us. Jesus has appointed us for this very thing. Bring him here. We'll cast him out, no problem. What the disciples did was rely on their own strength, rely on their own ability, and they didn't even recognize that anything they would ever do must come from God. So much so that Jesus makes it crystal clear they didn't pray, which means they didn't even ask for God's help. So we see then that prayerlessness is a true, clear reflection of faithlessness. And who here is not convicted by that? Yet let's flip that coin on the other side. Faithfulness will always manifest itself in a prayerful life. Because prayer is the most clear expression of your own inability. 
Because when you pray, you humble yourself before God. You go before God, you say, God, I can't do this, but you can. Look back to Jehoshaphat's prayer in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and see all the ways that he exalts the character of God, exalts the power of God, says to God, God, this is your land. We are your people. That is your enemy. And so we're simply asking you to intervene in the program that you have already established. And that's exactly what the church does in the book of Acts. They killed your holy servant, Jesus, whom you appointed for as heir of all things. They are persecuting your people. They've locked up Peter and John. Only give us the power, give us the boldness to continue to speak your word. And the Holy Spirit shakes the building to confirm that when they are aligned with God's kingdom and God's will, he will always meet them in their powerlessness. Because the power of God is most attracted to the powerlessness of man. Isn't this God's message to Paul? So that Paul realizes when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Because God's grace is perfected in my weakness. You see, weakness is not a bad word. Weakness is not a problem. Weakness is an opportunity to let the glory of Jesus Christ shine through. For you to be able to say, if it weren't for Jesus, that would have never happened. If it weren't for Jesus, I could have never conquered that sin. If it weren't for Jesus, I would have never been able to do that or say that. And so you get this entirely different picture in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 3, it's a, it's a healing, but you see the picture. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go in the temple, he asked to receive alms, to to give him money. Give me money so that I can be able to eat and live. And Peter, directing his gaze at him, as did John, and said to him, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate at the temple asking for alms and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. See, they didn't get it then, but they would get it later. That everything that they would do had to be done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That it was not their own power and their own ability or their own faith, but it was all about Jesus. And prayer would be the best way for them to demonstrate that. What does your prayer life say you believe about Jesus? Either positive or negative. Do you have a vibrant, dependent prayer life? Are you confident in yourself? 
Are you confident in your own abilities? Certainly God has given us strengths. Mankind is capable of so many amazing things. But God is God and we are not. God has opened our eyes to recognize that all the strength and all the power and all the glory rest in him and through Jesus Christ, he welcomes us into that. Does your life of prayer reflect that you understand that? Because it should. Because it should. And so we see these expressions of weakness, expressions of weakness that the Christian has gladly come to embrace because we understand that it's our sin that causes our weaknesses, that our weaknesses can be traced down to the root of sin, but we realize that Jesus Christ has dealt with that root. That for all those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus, that root has been pulled up and replaced with the righteousness of himself. I love all the songs that we sing, but one in particular I was thinking about as we, as I was thinking about this passage, one particular song that we have recently begun to sing came to mind, He Will Hold Me Fast. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. We can rejoice that even though our faith may be weak, we have a strong Savior. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, our strong Savior, we come to you now and we rejoice in your strength, in your power, in your glory, and in your compassion. Compassion that is extended to us as we recognize our weaknesses, as we recognize our faithlessness, as we recognize our sin. We're so grateful, Lord, that even though you will punish sinners who do not repent, you graciously forgive sinners who recognize their sin and their need for you, who throw themselves at your mercy because you paid for every one of our sins. So, Lord, remind us again of your goodness and your glory in the very forgiveness that you have given to us. Strengthen our faith, and yet at the same time, Lord, As you point out to us areas of weak faith, let us remember that we are always held in the arms of a strong Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.